Welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number 28, REAs and Claims. My name is Todd Hatherly, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, and we're a leader in federal government contracting, training, and professional development for the past 60 years. And every year, we train thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on the legal, regulatory, and compliance and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are just a small sampling of important content you as a contracting professional can expect from attending an FPS program, whether in live, in person, online, or on demand. You cannot find another source with the breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. Please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today is Dan Ramish from the law firm Smith, Pactor, and McWhorter. Good morning, Dan. How are you? And uh, tell us a little bit about Smith Pactor. Hi, Todd. Thanks. I'm doing very well. So Smith Pactor McWhorter is a boutique firm that specializes in government contracts, construction, and white collar matters. My own practice focuses particularly on government contracts, but I uh, intersect with construction and white collar uh, matters a fair amount as well. And our government contracts practice does a lot of claims litigation. And before going into private practice with Smith Pactor, I worked in-house for a government contractor that performed predominantly environmental remediation services and uh, handled REAs for them in that capacity. So I have experience with REAs and claims, both from an in-house perspective and from an outside counsel perspective. It's actually litigating claims is the reason I went into private practice. I, I kind of had got bitten by the bug in working on REAs and and wanted to do more. So this is my personal bread and butter. Our firm also does kind of uh, full service government contracts. And uh, I personally specialize also in cost and pricing issues and other complex issues as, such as government intellectual property. Any complex government contracts matter is of interest to me. But uh, today I want to talk about claims and REAs, as I say, kind of uh, our bread and butter and one of uh, my personal Uh, areas of interest. Good. Thank you for joining. Just to clarify, REAs for the audience, REA stands for Request for Equitable Adjustments. So with all the going on right now in government procurement law, the vaccines, cybersecurity, domestic preferences obviously play a part, but why why are we talking about claims and REAs? Well, Todd, claims and REAs are both a timeless topic and a timely topic. So they're, they're a timeless topic because, of course, the federal government's the largest buyer in the world, and contracts disputes with the federal government, as with any other party, are inevitable. Uh, you can't kind of think of everything that will go on in the performance of a contract when you're drafting and negotiating a contract. The United States government's history of contracting with private companies Uh, companies is as old as the country, or arguably older. The Continental Congress actually formed a board of war and ordinance in 1776 that procured clothing and medicine and arms for the Continental Army. Government contracting has has been around uh, as long as there's been a United States government, and uh, surely uh, claims and disputes, even though the Contract Disputes Act uh, dates to 1978, there have been contract disputes uh, as long as there have been government contracts as well. And today, the federal government, of course, spends uh, on the order of half a trillion dollars a year on procurement contracts, and there are, there are a lot of contract appeals. 
over the last five years, for example, there have been between 800 and 1,000 cases pending at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, which handles you know appeals for uh, DOD agencies. And there are roughly 400 to 600 new appeals docketed every year. There's a high volume of, of contract disputes that get litigated. And the same is true of civilian agencies. There are typically on the order of 200 new appeals at the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals, or CBCA. Court of Federal Claims also has jurisdiction to hear uh, claim appeals under the Contract Disputes Act, although uh, the volume at the court is somewhat lower than at the boards. They typically report between 300 and 400 pending contract cases and uh, 100 to 150 new contract cases each year. But the Court of Federal Claims doesn't distinguish in their reporting between uh, claim appeals and bid protests uh, in their statistics. And a lot of their supposed contract cases are are actually bid protests. So a lot of uh, claim appeals at the boards, some at the courts as well. So there, there's a lot of contractor disputes with the federal government going on at any given time. They're kind of unavoidable. But even those figures kind of understate the overall number of claims and disputes because, of course, the FAR is actually structured for claims and REAs to be negotiated by the contracting officer and resolved in that way at that level. In fact, the FAR specifically sets forth the government's policy to resolve all contractual issues by mutual agreement at the contracting officer level. These are a fact of life for government contractors. And if you're in business long enough as a contractor, unfortunately, uh, it's probably unavoidable that you will REA or claim situations. I mentioned that uh, REAs and claims are not only a timeless topic, but a timely topic. In fact, there have been a number of contract appeals decisions in the last couple of years that have changed some of the requirements for a valid claim and that have further defined the difference between a claim and a request for equitable adjustment. I'm hoping to talk a little bit about that. I appreciate that because, yeah, timeliness is always important in this how do requests for equitable adjustments and claims typically arise? And I'll mention that, of course, there can be government claims as well. I, I wanted to focus today uh, on contractor claims. Yes. And contractor claims and requests for equitable adjustment are both requests that the contractor submits to the government for relief under a contract. Typically, that relief would be additional money or time for performance, but the definition of a claim also encompasses contract interpretation or other relief in theory. Uh, so there can there can also be non-monetary claims, although case law from recent years has kind of narrowed what non-monetary claims are permissible. But in either case, whether you're talking about monetary claims or non-monetary claims, you start with the contract itself and the facts on the ground as the contract's being performed. When you're looking at the contract, there are a number of standard contract clauses in the FAR and the DFARs that are referred to as remedy-granting clauses that provide the contractor entitlement to an equitable adjustment, adjustment of time or money under certain circumstances. So to take a few examples, the changes clause, the differing site conditions clause, suspension of work or stop work order. The changes clause is maybe the most commonly used remedy granting clause, and it authorizes the contracting officer to make certain changes within the general scope of the contract. And the the clause originated because of the military's need to have flexibility in wartime. But the clause permits both orders of the contracting officer directing changes to the contractor and also implied or constructive changes that are recognized by the case law. In either case, the contracting officer is requiring the contractor to perform some kind of extra work. And that could be as simple as uh, just requiring the contractor to perform an extra task that isn't required by the contract. 
Uh, or it could be a situation where the government requires the contractor to perform work in a more expensive way when the contractor would otherwise use a less expensive method that would satisfy the requirements in the contract. As an example of this latter type of change, in one case, a contractor was required by a contract to cut down trees, and the contractor wanted to cut down all the trees that were called for under the contract at once, but the government required the contractor to cut them down one by one uh, individually because they were trying to save trees to the extent they could. They were concerned about cutting down too many trees, harming the environment, harming the landscape, something like that. And of course, it was more time-consuming and expensive for the contractor to have to go out in the field multiple times to cut down one tree at a time, just so the government could decide whether they wanted to cut down that exact tree. And the contract didn't specifically say that the contractor could only cut down one tree at a time. It didn't prohibit the contractor from cutting down multiple trees, so the board uh, found that the contractor was entitled to an equitable adjustment. Another remedy-granting clause that is common comes up a lot in uh, in construction, the differing site conditions clause required for all uh, fixed-price construction contracts. It's also used in certain types of services contracts, including, for example, uh, environmental remediation services, although the clause is, is optional in those kinds of contexts. And the Differing Site Conditions Clause uh, provides the contractor will receive an equitable adjustment if site conditions are different from what was expected. So the the idea with the Differing Site Conditions Clause is to take the gamble on subsurface conditions out of bidding by placing the risk of unforeseen conditions on the government. And that seems like something that benefits the contractor because, of course, they don't want to be on the hook for unforeseen conditions they didn't know about. But it's also good for the government because uh, the government doesn't have to pay for uh, pay contractors for contingencies for unforeseeable conditions that will never materialize. One of the uh, kind of deeper dive facts about uh, differing site conditions, there are actually two different flavors of differing site conditions or uh, what are referred to as types, type one and type two. So the type one differing site condition is based on indications in the contract. If there's a latent condition, something that's hidden that the contractor had no way of knowing about, the time they're bidding the contract, that they discover is different from what the contract said it was going to be, then that constitutes a type one differing site condition. As an example of, of that type of uh, differing site condition, there was a dredging contract that indicated that a certain area at a project site would contain sand and gravel. But when the contractor got out of the site, they found that there was a rock in the area instead that they had to excavate. And the board in that case found that the contractor was entitled to an equitable adjustment under the differing site condition clause for the extra costs and time for removing the risk. And, uh, the and, that's, rock. Called, and that's called a latent condition, right? That, that's right. Latent uh, is the opposite of patent. So it's yep. something hidden that wouldn't be obvious. With all of the differing site condition scenarios, if there's a site visit, you're required to go there and look around and see what you can see. So we're talking about things that a contractor couldn't reasonably discover, have to be unforeseeable. And the the key thing about a type one differing site condition is that it requires the contract to say something about what the conditions of the site are going to be. Either that can be implied, but there there has to be some kind of affirmative, either express or implied uh, representation about site conditions. But contractors aren't totally out of luck if there are no contract indications. There's also a second flavor of differing site condition, a type two differing site condition, which involves unknown physical conditions of an unusual nature that differ materially from those that are ordinarily encountered and generally recognized as inhering in the work of the character provided for in the contract. Type two differing site conditions are very unusual conditions that 
are very surprising. Uh, one example of this uh, that came up in a case, there was a contract for cleaning ducts in fan housing, air conditioning ducts. And it was at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and the contractor had to remove grease, soot, lint, dirt, and other materials. The contractor, uh, when they started cleaning the ducts, countered uh, all kinds of extraneous material, trash, dirt, and unauthorized material. More specifically, the board said in its opinion that the extraneous material the contractor found in the ducts varied from beer cans and jars of jam to gunpowder, live ammunitions, and ladies' underwear described as in a deplorable condition, uh, (laughs) in the board's words. The government argued, and can kind of see where they're coming from, uh, that the contractor should perhaps have expected to find strange things in the ducks at a military barracks. But the board agreed with the contractor that that wasn't what they signed up for and found that that extraneous material was a type 2 differing site condition, really something that could not possibly have been expected in those ducks. The final example of a remedy granting clause, actually the pair of clauses that kind of highlight another aspect about uh, remedy granting clauses are the suspension of work and stop work order clauses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have kind of similar functions. Uh, The stop work order clause allows the contracting officer to stop all or a part of the work on a contract for a period of up to 90 days. And then the contractor is entitled to an equitable adjustment of time and money if the stop work order increases the time needed for performance or results in an increase in costs to perform. The suspension of work clause is similar, allowing the contracting officer to order a suspension of uh, work on the contract, which again could be partial or total. But that clause only provides for a price adjustment if a suspension results in unreasonable delay. It doesn't have a, a particular number of days. And the type of adjustment provided for under the clause is just described as an adjustment, not an equitable adjustment. You'll notice that the differing site condition clause and the changes clauses uh, all uh, make reference to equitable adjustments. And the suspension of work clause makes clear what the difference is between an equitable adjustment and just an adjustment. It says an adjustment shall be made for any increase in the cost of performance of this contract, excluding profit. So an equitable adjustment, a contractor can recover profit. If it's just an adjustment, that's just costs. It's something to pay attention to in remedy granting clauses if the the term equitable adjustment is a term of art that includes reasonable profit and not just costs, whereas an adjustment excludes profit and is just costs. This is both the stop work and the suspension of work are in 52.242, 14, and 15, correct? That's right. So what is the difference between a request for equitable adjustment and a claim? A good question and not easily answered based on uh, recent case law. There are a lot of similarities. And in fact, it's possible for a request for equitable adjustment or something that's labeled a request for equitable adjustment to actually be a Contract Disputes Act claim. But I could speak to kind of the different ways that people think about a claim versus a non-claim request for equitable adjustment. Contractor CDA claims are formal requests for contractual relief that must meet certain requirements that are set forth in the FAR. And perhaps the most distinctive feature of a claim as compared to a non-claim REA is that a CDA claim stops the clock for the statute of limitations for the Contract Disputes Act and starts the clock for a final decision uh, to be issued by the contracting officer and for interest under the Contract Disputes Act. So the Contract Disputes Act has a six-year statute of limitations and starts running when a claim accrues. And in layman's terms, 
That means a, a claim accrues when a contractor knows or should have known that an event occurred that gives the contractor a right to a price adjustment. So the the claimant has to have enough information to know of the basis of of their claim. And once that happens, accrual, they have to file within six years. And that sounds like a long time, but with the variety and complexity of things that the federal government buys, uh, there are many long-term contracts and contractors have a lot going on. Time flies. To stop that clock, submit a valid claim within the statute of limitations, only the receipt of the claim by the contracting officer stops the clock. So this is a a problem that contractors sometimes have, they submit a request for equitable adjustment, maybe the government strings them along for a while, and there are protracted negotiations. And by the time they get around to submitting a claim, they, they haven't carefully monitored their six years under the Contract Disputes Act. It's really important to, to pay attention to uh, when the claim accrues and not kind of sleep on that SOL clock, so to speak. Right. One kind of little known fact about the statute of limitations, when the Contract Disputes Act was originally enacted in 1978, it did not have uh, the statute of limitations. That was actually added in the 90s. And as part of that amendment to the CDA, the statute of limitations was not made retroactive. So older contracts were actually grandfathered in. The statute of limitations doesn't apply to contracts that were awarded before October 1st, 1995. Uh, again, th- this is kind of a narrow slice of contracts, uh, contract claims now, uh, because we're talking about claims that were awarded 26 years ago. But it does come up from time to time. Uh, those claims, even though regardless of when uh, a claim may have accrued, they're not subject to the statute of limitations. There is also a an exception to the statute of limitations based on government claims that are based on a contractor fraud, which makes sense. Of course, if a contractor uh, is defrauding the government and conceals what they're doing, the, the, it doesn't make sense for the, them to then have the benefit of getting off the hook with the statute of limitations. So statute of limitations, key reason to submit a claim. It also starts the clock for the contracting officer to submit a contracting officer's final decision. There's a kind of basic 60-day time period for the contracting officer to submit a final decision uh, under the FAR, but there is an out for claims over $100,000. The contracting officer can tell the contractor that they're going to take longer, but they need to be specific about how much longer they're going to take. That clock also starts when a claim is submitted and isn't affected by an REA. And at some point, if the contracting officer blows past their 60 days, takes too long to issue a final decision, the contractor can appeal based on uh, what's referred to as a deemed denial. If you don't get back to me, government, in a reasonable amount of time, then you're effectively denying it without issuing a final decision. And that will also support an appeal of a claim. So that's an important clock because it really gets things going in, in the litigation. It also, when you submit a claim, starts the clock for interest uh, under the Contract Disputes Act. So there are benefits to having interest starting to run. Sometimes these disputes go on a long time. You're potentially leaving money on the table if you take too long in submitting a claim. The financial side, as far as the difference between a claim and an REA, relates to cost allowability. So as general rule, claim costs are typically unallowable and REA costs are allowable costs. So there's been a longstanding rule dating back more than a century through various iterations of cost principles that costs incurred pursuing a claim against the government are unallowable. On the other hand, uh, costs in the administration of a contract that can include legal and consulting costs uh, are generally allowable. 
And the test to distinguish between allowable contract administration costs and unallowable claim prosecution costs is whether the costs were incurred the genuine purpose of materially furthering the negotiation process. If the contractor is trying to sue the government, that's an unallowable cost. The taxpayer is not going to pay for that. But if they're trying to negotiate a resolution of a dispute with the government, then that's an allowable cost. One of the ways that that uh, is practically resolved is that uh, REA costs uh, are usually allowable. But by the time there's a claim, typically that looks uh, more like an unallowable claim prosecution cost. Now, it is possible to resume negotiations to try to settle uh, even during litigation, and the test remains in effect. So it's not kind of a bright line for when a claim is, right. is submitted. If the contractor then comes back and works to negotiate a settlement, even if those uh, settlement negotiations aren't ultimately successful, those costs can be allowable too. But the submittal of the claim is kind of a line of demarcation in a lot of instances. It's kind of a convenient place to draw a line to say the REA was allowable, claim is unallowable. Sure. Now, sure. talk about claims. Uh, claims are uh, take a very definite form. They have to meet the requirements in the FAR and under the Contract Disputes Act. Uh, an REA is more informal. I mentioned an REA could could be a claim, but an REA is kind of a, a broader term for a request by the contractor to the government for contractual relief. Right. There are not a lot of uh, rules about what REAs have to contain or the form they have to be submitted in. There is one rule uh, for REAs, however, at least for DOD contracts. There is a certification requirement included in the DFARS that requires REAs be certified if the amount sought exceeds the simplified acquisition threshold. Uh, and this requirement, uh, I've heard tell, goes back to Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the nuclear Navy and was kind of a lead advocate in favor of this certification requirement. There are a lot of stories about Admiral Rickover, but he was because he was uh, famously distrustful of contractors and frequently complained about contractors earning excessive profits and gouging the taxpayer. But then uh, ironically, late in his career, the Admiral was embroiled in a scandal because it turned out he accepted tens of thousands of dollars of improper gifts from defense contractors. So uh, <laughs> it seems like there's a, a lesson in human nature there, but <laughs> we have the Admiral to thank for, for the REA certification requirement. So for at least for DOD contracts, both REAs uh, and claims over the applicable thresholds require a certification, although DFARS and the FAR slash CDA have slightly different requirements for certifications that you have to pay attention to. The typical approach that contractors take is to submit an REA and then follow that uh, with a claim. Or what, what is frequently done is to actually convert an REA to a claim, meeting whatever additional requirements are needed to take the REA and make it a claim. The reason contractors will generally uh, submit an REA first is that REAs are seen as kind of less adversarial and, and easier on the relationship with the client. As long as there's no uh, statute of limitations risk uh, and there are no other urgent time pressures, cash flow problems or things like that, there isn't much downside in submitting an REA first. I mentioned that the requirements for an REA are, are fairly relaxed, but it's, it's still a best practice to fully develop an REA before submitting it to the contracting officer. First, development of an REA is, as I mentioned, more likely to be recoverable as an allowable cost than if you wait and submit kind of a, a bare bones REA and then beef up the claim. You don't get to uh, be reimbursed for those costs. The other thing is that if you fully develop the REA, that likely increases the probability of resolving the dispute without escalating it, which 
may be able to save you time and money. Part that's because developing the REA fully shows that you are serious about pursuing the issue and resolving it. And in part, it's because the contracting officer, as a practical matter, has his or her own requirements to justify a price adjustment. And so they need enough information to evaluate the merits of a claim and paper the file with a a price negotiation memorandum. So if you have a more detailed REA from the get-go, you help the contracting officer help you to grant a price adjustment when it's justified. And it also is pretty straightforward and commonplace to convert an REA into a claim. If uh, an REA is fully developed, a lot like a claim uh, in a lot of cases, and Mm -hmm. It may just require being called a claim and adding a request for an equitable adjustment and then modifying the certification to use the form that's prescribed by the uh, FAR and the Contract Disputes Act. Well, Dan, thank you for joining me today. And as always, if you have topics that you want us to cover in a podcast, please send me a note at todd at fedpubseminars.com. Until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the FAR.